0: Good morning, my name is Andy, I'm an elder here at North Shore and a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I have scripture reading this morning and then prayer. We'll be reading John 13 verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you this morning for the ability to be here. We thank you for this time to worship you. Our Father... We thank you for the time we've spent worshiping you in praise, with song. We thank you for the time we've spent in reading your word. I thank you for your indwelling spirit that enables us to worship you, to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise that are rightly due. God, I thank you that you are here in our midst. Your Holy Spirit dwells within us, in our hearts, and you give us peace and joy and happiness as we give you that honor and glory that you are rightly due and God I just thank you again that this body of believers meeting here this morning in Menominee, Michigan to serve you our great glorious God the creator of this world the sustainer of all things the author of life God we just cannot be more thankful than we are God, I ask your blessings on this time we have. I ask that you would bless Duncan. Let him speak your words. Let him deliver your message to your believers here in this building. I also ask your blessings as the teachers, as they teach the children, that they would learn to know you and to put their faith in you at a young age so that you can guide them as they grow up into your body of believers here. God, I also ask that you would just be with us through the rest of this day as we even leave this service, that we would just be the hearts, the minds, the example of your love as we go out into the community. And we ask this all through your son, Jesus. Amen.
1: Thank you, Andy. Well, today we begin a new series of messages from the Gospel of John. John's a long book, so we're going to be doing chapters 13 through 17. This particular section of John's Gospel is called sometimes the Farewell Discourse. More often it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus gave this particular teaching to his 12 disciples on Thursday evening of Passion Week. So they were celebrating the the Passover holiday, and this was just hours before he was arrested. And so he knows that within hours, along with all the other Passover lambs, he too is going to be sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb for sin. So as we begin this series of of teachings from John 13 to 17, it's important that we know that the order in which Jesus teaches these teachings is not arbitrary. He starts with the most important. He begins by answering the question, what's the proper heart attitude of a disciple of Christ? This is a very familiar topic for Jesus if you follow the Gospels. But what separates this particular teaching on servanthood from the others is the uniquely powerful way that he teaches it. And he teaches it in part by washing the disciples' feet, giving them a living example of what he's talking about. This teaching runs on two tracks, however. The first is the one that's perhaps more obvious, and that is Jesus as a servant teaching and modeling humble service through the washing of feet. But several times in these verses it's pretty clear Jesus is talking about something more than just servanthood. This humble act of washing the feet of his disciples also on the second track points to another bigger act of humility, the cross. We'll see more of that later on. Jesus stressed his priority, for his disciples being servants, not only by teaching it first, by the, but by this example that they would never forget. Today we're going to look at three reasons, three lessons, I should say, Jesus teaches us on the crucial topic of servanthood. Three lessons that Jesus teaches us on the crucial topic of servanthood. These lessons speak to the very heart of what it is to live out as a disciple of Christ, okay? indicators of a good heart servanthood this is central to living as a christian servanthood therefore our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness in living as a servant to others is a crucial determinator of where we are with god whether we're healthy or not healthy or perhaps not in the body at all the first lesson about servanthood that jesus teaches from this foot washing is seen in the great love that motivates jesus's service to his disciples the great love that motivates Jesus' service to his disciples. So servanthood is not in the abstract. It's rooted in something. It's rooted in his love. We know this is a big piece of what Jesus intends to teach us because John says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passovers, when, before Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, That's not just in there. To make a a nice summary. This means that he loved them to the end of his life. He loved them to the uttermost. He never failed to love them. And these hours to come, his love for them and for us is never more evident. Let's look at two powerful expressions of Jesus' love that John points out to us here. The first is his love for Judas, his betrayer, and the second is his love for Peter, his disciple verse two says during supper the passover meal when the devil had already put it into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him okay that tells us if nothing else that the crucifixion of jesus though clearly sovereignly orchestrated by the father also satan had a hand in it this was in some sense satanically inspired as well okay Now, up to this point, we know that Satan had been trying like crazy to keep Jesus away from the cross because he, unlike the disciples, he knew what was at stake there. We see his attempts to keep Jesus away from the cross in Matthew 16. Simon Peter foolishly rebukes Jesus because Jesus is talking about the inevitability of him to go to the cross. And Jesus rebukes him for that, attempts to dissuade him from that. Peter rebukes Jesus. And so that's when Jesus calls Peter Satan. Satan was an unknowing tool of Satan in his attempt to keep Jesus from the cross. That's what he's saying. But the devil, by this point, has obviously switched his strategies because he's working to try to get Jesus on the cross, which is why he moved Judas to betray him. So evidently, Satan's plan B to foil Jesus' attempt to redeem humanity, which is what his purpose was, was to get Jesus to disqualify himself as a Savior by getting him to sin in some way by orchestrating a terrible satanic onslaught against Jesus in and around his trial and his execution. That too failed. Jesus knew that he was going to be eating the Passover with his betrayer this night. This man who, along with the other 11 disciples, had had the unspeakable privilege of spending the last three years under the personal tutelage of the greatest teacher who's ever lived Jesus Christ. But beyond that, Judas had never experienced love from anyone the way he experienced it from Jesus. We know this because Jesus always expresses love perfectly. So Judas has received a perfect expression of love from Jesus for three years. And in exchange for that love, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas turns on him, he turns him over to people who he knew had murderous hatred for him. In washing the feet of Jesus, Jesus took in his hands the dirty feet of the man who helped nail those same hands to a cross. The irony here is really thick. Jesus had known Judas was the betrayer from the moment he chose his disciples. He speaks to his disciples in John 6:64 6, and he says, <clears throat> But there are some of you who do not believe. And then parenthetically he said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is, a, this is near the beginning of his ministry. Later on in verse 70 in chapter 6 in the Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas loved Je- Jesus loved Judas for three years knowing that he was a devil. Some modern scholars have tended to be much more easy on Judas, almost making him a victim instead of the villain. Jesus never felt any compassion for Judas. Not here, anyway. Devil is not something that you call someone that you consider a victim. The amazing thing about Jesus' relationship with Judas is not that he considers him a devil. It's that Jesus loves the devil Just minutes before Jesus explicitly excuses Judas so that he can betray him, that's why he said, do quickly what you're going to do, just moments before that he washes his feet. We know John wants us to see this as an expression of genuine love from Jesus and not just some sort of noble gesture because immediately after John makes the comment that Jesus loved them to the end, he brings up Judas' betrayal. He connects those very tightly. You can't ignore the context there. Even though Judas is obviously a tragic figure, this account is so hope-giving to us sinners because Judas isn't the only sinner to betray Jesus. His betrayal obviously was uniquely evil. But every believer has at some point turned on Jesus in acts of betrayal. Every time we're ashamed to speak his name to someone, we're betraying him. Every time we intentionally do something we know is opposed to his will and will grieve his spirit, we're betraying him. The theologians tell us, and they're right, that all sin is cosmic treason, personal betrayal. And his response to those who follow him is, of course, he washes us. He cleanses us from our sin. If you're a believer and Satan has been lying to you, telling you that the sin in your life is so evil and so miserable that Jesus can't possibly love anyone like you, remember Jesus' love for Judas, a devil. And then boldly claim Christ's love and faith for you and chase the liar away with the truth of Christ's example to Judas here. We see a second expression of Christ's love in verses 12 to 13 in his love for Peter, his apostle Peter is so petrine here, isn't he? Beginning with verse 6, uh, let's look at verse 1, or one verse at a time. Incredibly patient, long-suffering love that Jesus has for Peter. It says, He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. The arrogance here is immeasurable, Right? I mean, it's arrogant because he's setting himself apart from the others, but it's really arrogant ultimately because he tells the Lord of the universe that he is wrong about this foot-washing thing. He's telling Jesus that his intention to wash his feet was mistaken. Peter vetoes Jesus. As we said, Peter had done this before, already back in Matthew 16. That resulted in Jesus comparing him to the prince of darkness, but evidently Peter hadn't learned anything from that encounter, and so here in the upper room, he again feels it necessary to correct his master. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to him, Peter, in correcting me, do you harbor a death wish? Or, Peter, you've known me for three years. Have you ever seen me make a mistake? None of that. Jesus has no pride, unlike us. So he doesn't take the sin personally. He doesn't respond to this as a personal insult. This was typical Petrine impulsiveness. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach something about him and the rest of the disciples. After Jesus gently assures Peter that he, Jesus, is not the one mistaken, he tells him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Again, notice how Jesus has switched to this other second track of the teaching, right? He's not speaking primarily about foot-washing in that sentence. He's now alluding to a much more profound act of service to which foot-washing pointed to. That is, the sin-cleansing cross of Christ. Now, an appropriate response from Peter to Jesus at this point would have been a very chastened statement like, well, in that case, Master, may it be to me as you will. Instead, the ever-melodramatic Peter responds by requesting that his Lord and Master now give him a bath. What makes Peter's response to Jesus and what makes Jesus' response to Peter even more remarkable is Peter was always making these kind of absurd statements, these over-the-top, impetuous statements. Peter had a habit of acting out like this. Jesus' response to Peter is even more remarkable when you remember that Jesus knew that within hours, this same outspoken, impetuous Peter, who had been so bold and so brash to correct Jesus, this man, in tremendous cowardice, would three times deny that he even knew Jesus. Jesus knew all that, but in the midst of Peter's glaring foolishness here, he meets him where he is, and he loves him. Love is patient, and nobody models the patient love of God like Jesus Christ. Jesus' patient love eventually transformed this impetuous man into the rock, Petros, the rock, through whose preaching would initially build his church. His patient love also transforms us if we genuinely trust in it. Again, this is so encouraging to us because even though our personalities may not be like Peter's, every time we knowingly sin against Jesus, we're saying, Lord, I veto you. And you're just going to have to live with that. See, we better be careful about looking down our nose too hard at Peter. Peter's in all of us. A big part of Jesus' servant heart toward us is his completely undeserving love of us. A frequent New Testament theme, a frequent New Testament theme, as many of us have heard before, is how crucial it is to our spiritual health and maturity, how crucial it is to our spiritual health and maturity to believe in our hearts that God loves me. And he did that with Peter with amazing patience. This is why Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus, because he knows this is so important that these people understand in their hearts that they receive it, that it's embedded into their hearts, never to leave that God loves them. This is what he prays, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You need to know it, which surpasses knowledge, that, so that you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. That's spiritual maturity. So first of all, believers must be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, okay? Rooted, grounded. So if our relationship with Jesus was a house, the foundation would not be our obedience. It would not be some act of spiritual discipline. It would be our trust in God's love for us. That's foundational. That's where we have to be rooted and grounded. Our trust that God loves us. This means that if our spiritual roots or our foundation is not the faith, the absolute assurance of Christ's love for us, then we can't be spiritually healthy if that foundation of our faith in his love for us isn't firmly in place, there can't be lasting stability in our lives. We're going to run hot and cold. We're going to run up and down depending how certain or uncertain we are of God's love for us at that moment. So when Paul is praying for believers that we'll have the strength, the divine enabling to know the breadth and length and height and depth of his love, he's praying that believers will know all the wondrous dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. The point is, We don't need a kindergarten understanding of this love. Paul says, I pray that you have two PhD understanding of his love for you. That's what he's saying, a profound understanding of his love for you. Tim Keller speculates that the breadth of his love, because he doesn't tell us, is probably how many millions and millions of people he's going to save through his death on the cross. The breadth, it's broad, it's all over. The length of his love is probably the kind of benefits that are earned from his love. That is, that is... It's eternal. Okay? The height of his love probably speaks of where it ultimately brings those he loves, to heaven with him. And the depth of his love is the scandalous depth that Jesus was willing to stoop to demonstrate his love, to torturously die naked and humiliated as a criminal struck to the wooden cross. Paul prays that we would know all of that, which means it would be good for us to meditate on all of those things, the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ. That's really important. Paul prays that we would be empowered by God to know comprehensively this multidimensional love for us. Okay, Because he's praying, he's asking God to help us as believers comprehend this incomprehensible love, it must be a God-given supernatural capacity to know this love that we can't have without God's help. I mean, that's self-evident because he prays that we would know what surpasses knowledge. Try that sometime. <laughs> to know what surpasses what you can know. And yet that's what Paul prays. This requires an act of God. We can and should t- spend time meditating on his love, meditating on his love, and memorizing scriptures of his promises of love for us. But that alone is not what's going to convince us. It's the Holy Spirit alone who can use these truths to convince us at our heart. Level of God's love for us because our prideful hearts do not naturally believe that God could love us. The experience of his love is far, far more than just acknowledging the formal doctrine of God's love for us in Christ. What gives joy is the understanding that God loves me. You have little joy in your life. You have little understanding of God's love for you. This kind of shallow understanding of his love that it's kind of a doctrine thing and it's not experience that's never going to allow you as Paul says to be filled with all the fullness of God spiritual maturity. You can't even approach maturity without having a deep understanding and experience of God's love in Christ for you. And my experience tells me though they are hesitant to admit it there are many brothers and sisters in Christ believers who are greatly hindered in their maturity because deep down They don't consistently believe this. And their understanding of God's love for them is conditioned upon, are they having a good day? Are they having a good week? Are they having a good month? That's not the gospel. The second lesson is in verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So a second lesson Jesus teaches about servanthood is the humble acts of service Jesus explicitly exemplifies for his disciples. The humble acts of service Jesus explicitly exemplifies for his disciples. That's the second lesson. In many ways, humility is the most fundamental Christian virtue because it logically precedes all the others. You can say, well, I thought agape or New Testament love was fundamental. Well, that's central. That's obviously the central Christian ethic, but you won't love someone the way you're supposed to if you feel superior to them. Okay? You won't put yourself out in sacrificial love to someone who you proudly assume doesn't deserve it. So in that sense, humility is required for every other Christian virtue. And probably the one place that Jesus describes himself, and he describes himself very few times, the one place he describes himself more explicitly than anyone else is in Matthew chapter 11. What does he say about himself? That should be important. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That means humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So this most explicit time when Jesus describes himself, that's what he highlights. He's humble. Okay? This character trait of his should tell us how important it is for us to be this way. Think about it. Jesus was constantly around people who were immeasurably inferior to him. Okay? And yet he was sacrificially giving to them. That's humility. I want us to very briefly, just a couple sentences on each to look at five marks that characterize Jesus' humble marks of service. The first mark is that it was voluntary. By voluntary, I mean it wasn't his responsibility. Okay? There was no sense of external obligation for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. It came totally and completely from his own servant heart of love. Okay? That's a challenge for many of us, this voluntary nature. How many times do we do something just because we want to bless someone, just to make them feel special? For husbands, this might mean rubbing your wife's neck or giving her a back rub without being asked, doing something that is normally her job, whether that might be the laundry or taking the kids out or mowing the lawn or whatever, and doing it without being asked. A second mark of Christ's servant heart is that it was substitutionary. That means not only was this not his duty, it was somebody else's responsibility, but he chose to do it in their place. I mean, you would never wash the feet of a peer, even, much less you would never wash the feet of anyone who regarded you as their teacher and master. It wasn't done, okay? The culture dictated that it would have been the disciple who would have washed the feet of the teacher if anybody was doing any foot washing here. We just understood. He did this in place of someone else, which requires even more humility than if it's voluntary, Okay? This is part of the mandate of any true servant. Our impulse is to say, someone else should be doing this. And the heart of a servant says, someone else should be doing this. But they aren't, so I'll do it. A third mark of Christian servant heart is it was selfless. This is implied in the first two marks, but there's more to it. It's possible to be both voluntary in your service and even do it as a substitute, but by the way you do it, make it about yourself. Like when you say to yourself, Well, no one else wants to do this, so once again, I guess I will. Okay, that's the martyr, right? We've all met him. He's living inside of us somewhere, right? Mary's sister Martha in Capernaum had this problem. She felt abused in her service, complained to Jesus about it, and he didn't show her one ounce of sympathy, did he? In fact, he gently rebukes her for being so caught up with her and not nearly caught up enough with him, like Mary was. We can also do something that's both voluntary and as a substitute and still be selfish by drawing attention to our amazing altruism to anyone who will listen. Husbands, myself included, are much worse in this area than wives. Yes, honey, while you were gone, I changed three dirty diapers and cleaned out the garage and took the dog out for a walk. And we say it like we just stormed the beaches of Normandy. Young people, if you want to be a servant, when you do something for your parents, when you serve them, don't complain about it, and don't alert the media. Just do it to bless them. And if they ask, who vacuumed the den? You can tell them, but if they don't, even better. That's to be like Jesus. A fourth mark of Christ's servant heart is it was indiscriminate. That is, his service wasn't dependent upon the nature of the task. It was indiscriminate wasn't dependent upon what the task was. I mean, it's easier to serve somebody if you love doing what they want you to do, right? If you follow Jesus' example here, you'll serve by doing something that nobody else wants to do. Okay? In Jesus' day, many Jews, many Jews wouldn't ask a Jewish slave to wash feet because even though they were a slave, He was a child of Abraham. We're not going to ask a child of Abraham to wash someone's feet. Washing feet was a job that was fitted for a Gentile slave among the Jews. And, of course, they thought of the Gentiles as dogs. So I think it's important for us to get inside that culture and see how radical this was. Only the lowliest of menial servants, dogs, washed feet. When Jesus laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, he was adopting what everybody knew was the dress of a slave, and that was looked down upon. Somebody without a shirt on, that's a slave, that's a person you don't need to worry about, that's a person you don't need to care about, okay? Jesus is just demonstrating here what he's taught in other places, like Luke 22. He says, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Jesus is saying, I'm constantly being counterintuitive as a servant. Again, in Mark 10:45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I was in seminary, an area pastor came during the first week of orientation, and he was telling us stories that would indicate to us would-be pastors what pastors do. And he told us a story about a family in his church who had a troubled teen, Tragically, this young person took his own life by shooting himself in the head with a shotgun in his bedroom. So the pastor was called over and he gave what was obviously typical pastoral care in that dreadful situation. He prayed and he cried and he read the scriptures. And as he was about ready to leave, he noticed that the police forensic team left. And he noticed that there was no one there to clean up the mess which, as you can imagine, was beyond revolting. So he's praying when he sees this dynamic, and he's asking the Lord who from the church could come over to clean up this mess, because when he looked around the room, all he saw was immediate family members. They weren't going to do this. And so as he's praying, almost immediately the Holy Spirit interrupted him and said, that's why I brought you here. And so he assembled his cleaning supplies, and he went into the bedroom and he cleaned up what used to be a teenage boy. That's what servants do. A final mark of a servant heart is it was impartial. Again, Judas was one of these who was served. The point is we must learn that Jesus, when we serve the human recipient of our service, is largely irrelevant. The human recipient of our service is largely irrelevant if we're serving like Jesus did. If we'll serve one person but not another, only certain races or genders or age groups or personality types, then we don't have the heart of Jesus. We're not serving as he served. The reason, of course, is ultimately because Jesus wasn't ultimately serving these men. He was serving his Father. The ultimate target of all of our service should be God, not someone who to us may not seem worthy of our service. The truth from a human perspective is the person we're serving may not deserve it, but God certainly does. Jesus' servant heart was voluntary, substitutionary, selfless, indiscriminate, and impartial. A third and final lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples and us is in the glorious gospel he brought to this world. The glorious gospel that he brought to this world. Again, it's obvious that Jesus intends to teach more here than about foot washing, right? Right? In verse 8, he says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. In verse 10, he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And he explains in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Oh, clearly, this is a whole lot more about, than about dirty feet, right? He's talking about a clean that's a whole lot different than having clean feet. This is the second track of his teaching we mentioned earlier. The foot washing by Jesus points directly to the cross and to the gospel. It's so important that when we think about this story and read this teaching, that we see it as a prefiguring of the gospel. What I mean by that is he is showing the disciples on a small scale what he will be doing more fully as the suffering servant on the cross. This is intended to be something of an acted out parable pointing to what's going to be the the true act of service. It's no accident that, like washing the disciples' feet, Jesus' death on the cross is voluntary, substitutionary, selfless, indiscriminate, and impartial. Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And Of course, what he's saying is, once you've come to faith in Christ, trusting in him alone for your salvation, you're clean, you're pristine, you're forgiven of all your sin. And as much as the enemy might try to convince us, otherwise, if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior and your Lord and your treasure, the rotten season of sin you may have just gone through no matter how shameful it is to you is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Do we believe that? We believe that for others. Do we believe it for ourselves? If you're in Christ, you've been given a spiritual bath with the only solvent that can cleanse away the stain of our sin, and that, of course, is the blood of Jesus. We need to regularly confess our sin, according to 1 John 1.9, but that's not what gives us ultimate forgiveness. That's to maintain fellowship with Jesus. That's foot washing. That's not the bath. The bath is conversion. The bath is being cleansed once and for all from your sin. Peter gives an important lesson why believers don't live out the character qualities that God has provided for them in 2 Peter 1.9, and this makes the point of why this is important. Listen to what he says. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you hear that? 2 Peter 1.9. For whoever lacks these, and he's talked about character qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind. The reason he lacks those character qualities is because he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay? Everything important you learn in kindergarten, right? That's the way it is with the gospel. What he's saying is, part of the reason why you're not mature in Christ is because you're not focused enough. It's not nearly enough a part of your heart that you have been forgiven. We tend to talk about this stuff and, and we tend to think, yeah, I, I understand the gospel. Can we go on to something else? Repeatedly, the New Testament brings us back and says, this is something else. This is the depth. This is what's important. It is a first importance that you know in your heart, not just your head, you are forgiven. If you don't know that, Peter says you're not going to act out Christian character. When you're unsure of your forgiveness, that means there's little or no faith to release the gospel's sanctifying power of salvation into our lives. Again, we can be sure that somebody else is forgiven, but after a rough day, do we believe we're forgiven? That's what faith is, the evidence of things not seen. Nothing in my life today shows that I'm a Christian. Okay? But you've accepted Christ. You've received Christ. You've trusted in the Word of God. So the evidence is in what's not seen, what God has done for you in Christ. Even more serious, if you've never been cleansed by your sin, by the blood of Calvary's cross, you have no part in Jesus. Being a nice person, or doing good things, or going to church, or being religious, none of those does a single solitary thing to cleanse you from your sin. That happens only through faith in Christ. As you place your trust in Christ alone and what he's done for you, then the gross stain of your sin leaves. If you haven't done that, then the stain of your sin continues to cling to you. As we conclude, let me read some lyrics from a, a, just a glorious hymn by John Newton. It's not very well known, which is tragic, um, This says better than anything else I know outside of scripture, the essence of the gospel and how it relates to our servant heart. Here's what Newton wrote. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's the effect the gospel has on a believer. If you're experiencing the saving power of the gospel and are walking in faith, trusting in what he's done for you and him, not your feelings, then increasingly servanthood is not a duty, it is a glad-hearted choice if you want to have seen and experienced the beauty of Christ, if that's been your experience, you will increasingly want to serve even the most undeserving people doing the most repulsive tasks. Because that's how we are transformed. The gospel changes a child into a slave and duty into choice. Have you experienced that? Have duty and pleasure been joined together for you in the gospel. Has duty become choice because of what Jesus has done for you to make you an adopted child of God. That's how the gospel sanctifies us. May God grant us the grace to serve him and others voluntarily as a willing substitute, selflessly, indiscriminately, and impartially for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, all of us falter because The default mode of our fallenness is to be so focused on ourselves that we don't have room for anybody else. And when we serve others, we do it in some way because it benefits us. They're going to think more highly of them, or they're not going to be mad at me, or they're going to give me a promotion, or whatever, God. Apart from you, God, everything we do is for self even if it seems noble to us. Ultimately, if we were to trace it back far enough to its origin, it would be about me. And so, God, we come to you as people who have that fallenness in us, that indwelling sin, and pray that you would teach us the gospel, that you would enable us to know your love for us, that you would enable us to know beyond any doubt that we are forgiven. Father, we treat this as elementary, the first three letters in the alphabet. God, it is absolutely the deepest thing we can know and understand, and many Christians don't have it down. God, help us. Help us to do this. And help us, God, out of that gospel to grow hearts that want to serve you and that want to serve others and that want to do it gladheartedly for Jesus' sake. And in his name, amen.